Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of Matthew, verses 18 through 22, entitled The Birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had already spoken by the prophet. So, Daniel, thank you. Good morning, everyone. I haven't per asked permission for this, but I'll do it anyway. I didn't ask permission because I thought somebody might say no. Um, but I want to be a bit closer to you. <laughs> okay. It is, a, it is a real joy to be here this morning and to have the opportunity to speak before I travel um, to Nepal on Wednesday. And the plan for today is really three things. I would like to do three things. Um, I want to talk just for a moment about myself, uh, about my recent illness, uh, about the travel plans. Secondly, surprise, I'm going to talk about Nepal. I, I don't think I've ever been up here without speaking about Nepal, but never mind. And thirdly, um, scripture reading has not been a mistake. I'm going to revisit Christmas, um, and I hope that's okay with you. I think... Um, as a family, we've done away with the Christmas decoration yesterday, not because we were sick of it, but because of the Christmas tree chip-up that we didn't want to miss. But it's still here, so I think it should be okay. Plus, last time I checked, um, this whole process of, of a child being born takes more than just a month, last time I checked. So it should be okay to talk about it in January. Um, those of, of I, th I think most people know me um, and know my family. For those who don't know me, my name's Daniel. Um, my wife, Karina, who is the most beautiful woman in the room over there. Um, Karina and I have been involved with missions in Nepal for the past 23 years. Um, and, and, and that's why we talk about Nepal uh, so much. Last year, um, while I was working in Nepal, during the monsoon. Monsoon is the hot, wet season when there's uh, lots of tropical bugs around in Nepal. I contracted three, uh, three or potentially four um, illnesses. Um, and and uh, we had a lot of individual conversations about that. So the fact is, I had at the same time hepatitis and encephalitis and the dengue fever. Um, and and yes, when you've asked me recently about how, how I was doing and, and so on, I usually speak lightly about it and say, oh yeah, it's been much worse for my family than it has been for me. Um, the fact is, really, if we look at the facts, uh, it's been life-threatening. 
um, and no, it's not been fun. And maybe it was harder for the family than for me, that's true, but it, it was also hard for me. Um, I do not have recollection of the entire time that I was at the hospital. Again, you guys know me. I, I cannot even stand still here in front of you for half an hour. It's just not possible for me. And that was for nine days or something. I was in a hospital bed, hooked up on all kinds of hoses. How would I bear this? <laughs> that alone. The fact is, my fever cycles, my fever was cycling between Karina, 102 and 106, something like that. They became unbearable. And there was that one night when it felt like I can't take it anymore. So when the fever was cycling down to 102, I was drenching uh, my pajamas and my linen and my, my everything so, so that they had to give me new bed because even the mattress was soaked. And minutes later, it felt like I was burning up and it was one of the time after time this happened. And there came the point when I thought I can't take it anymore. And you know what? Probably it was pretty close to not being able to... Uh, to, to sustain this any longer. And I think I drifted in and out of consciousness. At that. I, I don't know whether it's really consciousness or not, but I only had a few light moments. And here's there's just three things I want to tell you about this whole story. Uh, one of the things that really um, uh, sticks with me is every time I drifted into consciousness, I hear those words. Finally, I read them to you. It's easier. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor, and so on. And I think, I think, Karina, you can correct me. I think I heard this three or four times, and only later did I learn that that night, uh, Karina actually read Ephesians over and over to me, the whole book, uh, because, because there was not much that could be done medically, and it seemed a, a, a spiritual battle more than anything else. Thank you, Karina, for that. Secondly, um, I failed to recognize my wife. That was quite something. I learned about that later while I was sick in the hospital. I apparently asked the doctor who that woman was. <laughs> um, five minutes later, that I remember, five minutes later, a very tall doctor shows up, uh, very officially looking, officiously looking, and he introduces himself as, he had a better verb for that, but he was the head shrink, <laughs> the Lionsgate Hospital head shrink. And he said he had a few questions for me because there seemed to be some questions whether or not I was still, um, I was still right. Um, and so he asked me whether I could please repeat three words after him. And he goes something like, apple chair tree. And I go, yes, sure, apple, gone. Oh, and he said, again, apple chair tree. And apple, it was gone. And then he goes, can you please tell me how many things? And then he goes, can you spell the, the word world for me? W-O, I, I, I could do it, like on the fifth attempt or so. Can you spell it backwards for me? Not a chance. Not a chance. And so that, that was how I was realized that things were not all that great. Just... Just to tell you, it was not, it was not, all, that, um, not all that benign, the whole thing. Um, and finally, I was so blessed in that whole thing. I was so blessed uh, because all kinds of people visited and prayed 
Todd apparently was there. Sorry, I don't remember. Um, others of you were there. Um, days later, shortly before Christmas, as we ran this Christmas gifting program for Himalayan life, an old friend of mine uh, knocks at our door. He's the pastor at Hillside Church, Anthony. And Anthony comes and says, Daniel, I, I need to tell you something. I've been so blessed by your illness. And I said, oh, how so? Uh, and he goes, well, when I heard about it, I took up a practice, a spiritual practice that I haven't for years. I fasted and prayed. And I was touched. And he says, well, you know, it, I, you helped me recover this practice that I had forgotten, and I'm so blessed. It's quite amazing. Um, lastly, Lastly, when finally that crazy fever broke and things turned around, um, that, there was that moment. That was quite amazing. I will never forget that. I was with, with the doctor, with the main doctor who had looked after me, and I was clearly much, much better. Um, my fever may be the first time under 102 in 10 days. Um, and Karina came into the room, and I think it was morning time. Karina hadn't seen me that day. So the doctor interrupts, talking to me, and says, Good morning, Karina. What do you think of your husband today? And before she could answer, he continued to say, I'm thinking Lazarus. That's quite something. So I'm very grateful. I want to say thank you to all of you who have stood with us, who have prayed with us. Um, we've been incredibly blessed and, and feel fortunate to be part of this community. Um, you, you have blessed my family with meals, with compassion, and with whatnot. And I just wanted to take the opportunity and say thank you. I'm going back to Nepal for the first time after this illness this week. Um, I've never been away from Nepal for so long, ever, in the last 20 years. Not ever. Um, so it's, it's, it's good that I can go back. There's also a level of anxiety in all of us. I think that's true for the board of Himalayan life. I think that's true for some of you. That's true for my family. That's true for myself, too. We don't, I've been clear to travel medically, but we don't really know how strong I am. We don't really know how strong my immune system is. And we will see. And, and just trust and have faith and, and appreciate your prayers. I'm traveling Wednesday together with a friend um, who has offered to go with me, who has wanted to go with me to Nepal for quite some time. And here's the opportunity. We are grateful that I don't need to travel alone by myself. The, the fact is, had this whole beast hit me while traveling, I probably would not stand in front of you now. So I'm grateful to have a companion. I'll be gone for um, just over two weeks. It's the shortest trip I've ever taken to Nepal. It's a bit of a trial run. Um, it's particularly for the purpose of helping the, the Himalayan Life program managers um, in, their process of, in the process of evaluation and planning for all our projects and programs um, for, for tackling the next steps with regard to the school that we are building in, in the earthquake zone. Um, and we have a bit of a crisis at hand too. Those of, of who you are um, on Karina's prayer chain list will know that one of the street boys who's been with us for more than two years, who has gone through the apprenticeship program and has made a lot of progress, um, is, is, um, is in the process of dying. 
Um, there's no other way of saying it. He's had uh, a growth um, in his ear channel that needed to be surgically removed um, because it suddenly grew, grew much uh, faster. And um, my understanding is that it is a surgery that's even very dangerous here in the West, um, particularly because of, of the risk of bleeding into the brain, and that's what's happened. And so the Himalayan Life staff right now, as we sit here in Nepal, they're faced with this incredibly difficult and painful decision um, to pull the plug on him as, as he has been pronounced brain dead, um, but his, his, um, his body is still life worth on life support. Um, that will be a crisis to deal with, not so much uh, with the boy, with Harun is his name, but more with my staff who are, who are going through the uh, incredible pain of this all, um, of losing one of the boys whom we consider like a son to us and even more so to my staff. So thank you for your prayers for that. Secondly, I want to talk about Nepal, I said. It's, it's such a joy to me that this year we're doing this trip that Sutherland Church is coming along. Sutherland Church has coming alongside for a long time, actually. Maybe that's another thank you I can say here from this point for all the financial support that Himalayan Life is receiving from Sutherland Church. But it's, it's yet a different level that a team from Sutherland Church, um, a mixed team of adults and kids, youth, uh, even the pastor, it's great. I'm looking forward to this time talk. Um, that we're going together to Nepal. Um, and so that story, the, the Nepal story, becomes more the Sutherland story. And maybe the Sutherland story becomes more the Nepal story. And maybe, just maybe, we can learn quite a bunch on the way. I think we can. Um, Karina and I have been at this for 23 years. And it's been quite something. Um, 23 years ago, when we went to Nepal first, um, there was about 20,000 Christians in the country. And you had to be, the church was kind of semi-underground. So when you would talk about Christianity things, you had to be a little careful to whom you talk and what you say. And on a Saturday, going to church, the free day in, in Nepal is Saturday, not Sunday, um, Going to church on a Saturday was a bit of a hushed kind of thing. You, you turn around a few times and see whether somebody is following you, and not everyone knew where the churches are. It was a, a real insider thing because there was a level of persecution and, and, and whatnot. In those 23 years, we have seen the church grow from 20,000 people to roughly 2 million. That's amazing. And it could just be that the church in the West, we, Sutherland, but, but the church in the West can learn something from a church that has grown so much in such a short time and has learned to be the church in circumstances which are not friendly to them, in, in circumstances where the culture is actually fairly anti-Christian, a phenomenon which we uh, perhaps um, are experiencing more and more that we no longer live in this Christian culture where the church really is just the expression of culture. It's, that's no longer the case. And maybe we can learn from our brothers and sisters in a place like Nepal what it means to be church and how we can do church and live 
as the body of Christ and reach out, be, be salt and light to the culture um, in this kind of circumstance. So I'm really, really excited. Um, what Karina and I have seen in those 23 years is that God has used a few special channels of grace for making this growth happen. And the number one channel of grace, that's where this whole thing just fits together again with my story of, of experiencing God's healing recently, has been healing, physical healing. I think there's hardly a single family in, or a single uh, individual uh, among those two million believers in Nepal whose family has not initially come through the, to the faith through physical healing. In every family story, there's that one physical healing. So God has used um, this particular channel of grace uh, in, a, in a very powerful way. Why? I don't know, but he has. And it, it fits with the culture. And, and I want to explain this to you. Uh, because this now becomes your story. You understand what we're doing here. We're understanding how Sutherland fits together with uh, the the story of Christianity in Nepal. So here's what, what the Nepalese think, um, generally speaking. Not so much the, generally speaking. Um, everything that happens in the seen world has a counterpart in the unseen world. That's the mindset in, in, in large parts of Asia, not just Nepal. So what happens to me physically, my health, my circumstances, my, 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 my physical condition um, is the expression of what happens in, in the unseen world uh, um, somewhere, in the spirit world. That's, that's part one of their belief system. Part two is the unseen world is a spirit world which is populated by countless spirits. And unfortunately, sadly, those spirits are predominantly if not exclusively bad. They're evil. They're not benevolent at all. And thirdly, it is the Nepalese belief system that the spirit world can be manipulated by way of naming the spirits. So that's the belief system. So how does this work now? When people get sick, they don't necessarily go to a doctor, but they go to a shaman. The shaman is the person who knows names in the spirit world and who know, he knows how to manipulate the spirit world. Um, and the, the shaman has his methods of determining why, uh, suppose I have, I have a very severe flu, I'm very sick, I go to the shaman. I don't, by the way, it's just an example. Eh? Um, I go to the shaman and he has his methods of determining where in the spirit world something is wrong. That's pretty gross, by the way. Um, dancing into trance and reading out of, 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 of the liver from a chicken or whatever it is um, and, and working as a medium. It's, it's, it's pretty gross. But he has his methods of doing that. And once he has determined what is wrong in the spirit world, um, he then, if, if he can help, will name the spirit, a spirit which is higher up in that spirit hierarchy. And by doing so, he can manipulate the spirit world for my condition to go away. That's the belief system. And 
if you think this is all just hocus pocus that doesn't work, then I have to disappoint you. We've seen it work. It does work. But here's the big catch. Um, in Nepal, no one would assume that this comes free. By manipulating that spirit world, you automatically become uh, enslaved to that higher-ranking spirit. And next time you get sick, you need a higher-ranking spirit. And he's evil too. And it gets worse and worse and worse, and people get more and more and more enslaved to that whole system. But it works to some degree. And so here is why healing in the Christian circle is so powerful and such a testimony. Here's why. Christians will go to Philippians 2 and identify this as the core passage of the New Testament. Not John 3.16, Philippians 2. Jesus has been given a name above all names. We know the top spirit, and he's good. It's very, very powerful in that particular culture. He's good all the time. And, and so that's, that's maybe the testimony that the Nepalese church has um, and, and which, which connects with, with God's miraculous uh, way of, of healing so many people. And the church is really celebrating this. Um, when I say that Green and I have seen this unbelievable church growth over the last 23 years, and, and it is unbelievable, um, the sheer fact there is, is quite amazing, 20,000 to 2 million. Um, then really, I also have to say that we've only seen a very, very small uh, um, section of the history of the church in Nepal. We've just, it's a privilege to have been around for those last 23 years, but it's really just a small, small uh, corner of the church history. Let me fill you in a little bit. It's a history that has both um, missed opportunities and, and denied opportunities and then realized opportunities. The church in Nepal could be older could be, but isn't. It's only 50 years, okay, that this started with the very first Christians in the country, but it could be older than the church in Canada. It could be. In, if you know your history, in the 1200s, 13th century, the world has seen the largest empire ever. It was the, the empire uh, built by Genghis Khan, um, that, that Mongolian, that Mongolian tribesman um, these guys on their wild ponies who conquered all of, pretty much all of Europe, all the way to China, including the northern parts of what is now Nepal and Tibet and India and Russia. Everything became Genghis Khan's empire. It's un unparalleled. The Roman Empire has been much smaller. Um, there's no empire that ever had um, the size of Genghis Khan's empire. His son, Kublai Khan, uh, was faced with the task of, of consolidating this empire. At this time, Marco Polo, the, um, the explorer, traveled to Mongolia, and he met Kublai Khan. Uh, he was at his court, um, and Kublai Khan had the following thought. The emperor of this biggest empire the world has ever seen. He thought the key for consolida consolidating my empire might be religion, and he had heard about the Christian religion. He asked Marco Polo, he gave him a letter 
to bring to the Pope, who was the head of the Christian Church at the time. That's before the Reformation, eh? Uh, so we only have one Christian Church. So he, he sent a letter through Marco Polo to the Pope requesting 100 missionaries, 100 priests, to teach the court of, of his empire, to teach his religious teachers about Christianity with the, with the purpose and with his um, idea of making his empire a Christian empire. Just think about that. Wow, had this happened, it didn't happen, eh? Uh, unfortunately, when Marco Polo came back to Europe, those two popes, they were fighting each other. One was in exile. That was that time when uh, Christianity was not doing well at all, it's the Dark Ages. They never sent those missionaries. In fact, they answered five years later um, from Europe back to Kublai Khan. It was too late. By that time, Kublai Khan had adopted Buddhism as the state religion. And guess what? Look at Mongolia today. Look at those parts, southern parts of Russia today. Look at China today. Buddhism is still the, the, uh, the religion which has a firm grip on this whole area. Such, it's an unbelievable opportunity that we Christians have missed. Then a next opportunity came many years, years later. 1833, Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal was struck by an earthquake like one and a half years ago. Um, Nepal sees a major earthquake about every 80 years, by the way. Um, we should be okay on the trip. We just had one last year. <laughs> we should be all right. Um, Kathmandu was struck 1833 by a massive earthquake, which killed 60% of Kathmandu's population, which was a smaller population back then, but still. Um, Affected was a family by the name of Pradhan. And the Pradhan family was wiped out for just the granddad and one grandson. And the grandson, unfortunately, was blind. The granddad didn't know what to do. He, was, he, he, he needed help. But he had heard that in India, uh, in a place called Darjeeling, which, which lies east uh, of Nepal, uh, there would be a school for blind children. So he migrated. He took that boy. I, I think the, the boy was about 12 years at the time. He took that boy and traveled to Darjeeling. He found that school for the blind. Guess who ran that school for the blind? It was, it was a Christian mission. Um, he brought him to that school. And the Pradhan boy was brought up in the Christian faith. He became a Christian. Granddad died. Blind, blind Pradhan got married, started his own family, had children. All of them were Christians. And in their hearts grew the desire to bring that new faith to their homeland. And so they packed their belongings. It's quite a trek, actually, from Darjeeling to Nepal. Um, in those days, you, you could take the train and travel in India along the southern border um, to Nepal, and then from the southern border, you would walk about eight days to the Kathmandu Valley Rim. Um, and at the Valley Rim, um, there would be guest houses because no one was allowed to enter uh, Kathmandu, the city, without permission from the government. So they would, they would stay at the inn and they would apply for permission to enter the valley. 
and they had to state the reason. And they did. They were very open. They said, we have found faith in Jesus Christ. And we would like to share that faith with our family and uh, with, the, with, with the people of Kathmandu. That's, 18, uh, that's, that's, that's 1857. So 20 something years later. Um, that request was somewhat unusual. So uh, the first government official who got the request sent it up the ladder. Um, and it went all the way up to the prime minister and the king. And they conferred. And they drafted the letter back to the Pradhan family. They, in fact, had heard that the Pradhan family in the guest house had been robbed of their belongings. And they apologized. They, uh, they actually reimbursed the Pradhan family for their cost. But as far as your request goes for sharing the gospel of that Jesus Christ, it was answered, we do not have need for one more God. We do not need Jesus Christ, was the answer. And that was the end for the gospel for exactly 100 years. Nothing in Nepal for 100 years. Pradhan family migrated back to Nepal, not back to Darjeeling. I, I, I said that wrong. They migrated back to India, not back to Darjeeling, but just to the border where they started um, what came to be known as the Nepalese Evangelical Band, and w which was essentially a church. And for 100 years, that church, from the border, they lifted their hands over their homeland and prayed that somehow, somehow the door would open up into this country. And it took 100 years for, for the system to change. And then in 1953, somehow, uh, with, with changing government, the Christian Nepalese, not Christian missionaries, but Christian Nepalese were allowed to get back into Nepal and started sharing the gospel. And now we have two million believers. It's an amazing story. And now we have the chance as the church to become part of that story and plug in. And that's why I'm really, really uh, excited about this. I'm also excited about this earthquake story that I just told you. Um, an earthquake is not a good thing. I do not believe, not, I mean, obviously, through that earthquake, eventually, the gospel came into Nepal uh, because the Brodon family, after that earthquake, fled and so on. I do not believe for a second that such disasters are sent by God. I don't, I don't think he does, he does evil stuff in order to accomplish good. I don't think so. But somehow, somehow it seems to be in God's nature that he turns that evil on its head and brings good out of it time and time again. He does that in my life. He did it in the incarnation, by the way. The, the greatest evil that ever happened on, the, on this planet must be the crucifixion of God's Son, and the greatest good has come out of it. It seems to be God's hobby. I trust and I believe that the same will happen with the earthquake we experienced last year, uh, a couple of years ago, 2015. So another disaster. And through that disaster, our organization, Himalayan Life, has the chance to build a school in the heartland of Tibetan Buddhism in Nepal, to cut the long story short. And we're there. We're a Christian organization. 
We have Christian teachers. We have a Christian administrator. And we're welcomed. I don't think we will be welcomed to go around and powerfully preach the gospel at this point in time. Ah, but we're welcome to be there. And I trust that somehow, in God's own timing, there will be fruit. Um, this brings me probably to, to part three of this morning, to reflection on Christmas. It's not quite it yet, but we had uh, a nativity set. We've, we've heard quite a bit about nativity sets this Christmas, about the hipster nativity set and, and, and so on. We have, we have, in fact, about four nativity sets in our family. Um, the real beautiful carved one. Uh, we have uh, the one from Nepal. We have the one which looks best, but is really plastic. Um, yeah, yeah, we had that carved one. And we didn't do this on purpose, but there's that place in our living room uh, where in, in the shelf we have a piece of a house in the Yangri Valley, which was destroyed by an earthquake. It's a little grill that goes in front of a window. And, and I've asked that I could have that because Kirin and I felt that we, we need something from that valley in our house and for the connection. Sometimes it's not quite that easy to live partially here and partially in Nepal. And I, I, I need such things. Um, just so happened that this part of the broken house in the Yangri Valley formed the backdrop to the nativity set. It got me thinking, how will the gospel eventually take a foothold in a place like Yangri, in the heartland of Tibetan Buddhism, after missed opportunities of 800 plus years, as I just talked about? How can it happen? And it seems that the nativity scene was a little baby in a manger an extremely humble scene might be the answer. The approach has to be humble, and it might take time. And maybe God has the time. So I'm trying to be patient, which is not exactly my biggest strength, but I'm trying to be patient. Uh, reflection on the Christmas story, part three of this month. In my, in my mind, by the way, and in my preparation, those three parts... Uh, my personal story and Nepal and the reflection of the Christmas story. It beautifully flew from one part to the other. It will flow just beautifully. Right now it doesn't. So forgive me. I'll just, I'll just tell you anyways. Uh, every year as I reflect on the Christmas story yeah, it will flow again. Uh, as I reflect on the Christmas story uh, one or the other thing stands out, and I hope it's the same for you. Every year something else is standing out. I, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I, was, I was really focused on Mary uh, and, and her story and, and what it meant for her. This year it's Joseph, interestingly. Um, and it's particularly, it comes out of the Christmas story as we read it in Matthew. Uh, it's kind of interesting how the different Gospels, the different Gospel writers have a different approach how they tell us the story. Each and every one has a different focus for writing the Gospel. Um, so we got Matthew, who writes the Gospel predominantly for a Jewish audience, and for the Church, by the way. Um, it's, it's really a, a perspective that's highly interesting 
for people who have been walking in the faith for quite a while. Um, Mark has a perspective that's quite different. He writes to the Roman world. He writes to those who don't have that background of thousands of years of Torah and, and Yahweh and whatnot. And so in, in Mark, Mark is the only gospel which does not have the Christmas story because Mark wants his reader to know Jesus Christ not so much by way of his family background but by way of what he does and how he lives and the miracle he performs. So theologians speak of the Christmas story of omission in Mark because it's quite purposeful. And then Luke, of course, has his perspective with, with a particular um, uh, with a particular emphasis on the poor and on women and on children and on minorities. And John is the theologian. He comes with a theological theological view and, and sees that he has the most cryptic Christmas story, by the way. And the word became flesh. Well, it's a good story, but I like the one in Luke better. <laughs> it's, it, it's more fun to read. And John then goes, actually, and and expands on his Christmas story in the book of Revelation. He revisits Christmas in Revelation 12, but you can read that at home. That would probably uh, be a bit beyond the scope of this morning's uh, talk. I'm captivated by Matthew's story that has a focus not just on Mary, but also on Joseph. And we've, we've heard it from, from Anne. But what it says is, um, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And now, here's the clue. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The key word here, the key word is a righteous man. That's not just any word. That's a big, big word. Remember, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. He writes to the people who have this concept of, of what it means um, to wait for the Messiah, this concept of faith in Yahweh, this concept of belief in the Torah. And an absolute key concept for the Jewish population at the time was righteousness. The Jewish word for the, the Hebrew word for it is tzaddik. Tzaddik, it's a cool word, eh? I like languages. So tzaddik should maybe perhaps part, be part of uh, your vocab too. Um, tzaddik means righteous. Tzaddik means, how do you become a tzaddik? Tzaddik means you are faithful to the entire body of the law. That's not the Ten Commandments, just to be clear. The, the Old Testament has 613 rules and laws, 613. There's a, a super wide range. Of course, the, the Ten Commandments are part of that. You shall not kill, and you, um, you, should, not, you should keep the Sabbath holy, and so on. But there's much more. Um, in fact... Karina, can you do me a favor? I left the book beside my chair there, and I need it. Um, in fact, those 613 laws, they, they will affect every part, thank you so much, 
every part of your life. So there is laws about sacrifices, when, at which day, you need to bring what kind of sacrifice. There is laws about what you can eat and what you cannot eat. If you like your pork, forget it. Um, if you're a tzaddik, you cannot eat pork. Um, there is laws about learning the Torah, learn, memorizing the first five books uh, of the Bible. Uh, the, the, the law prescribes that you would actually write parts of the Torah on little scrolls and bind them to your head and bind them to your forearms. A tzaddik would do that because every single law that's in the Old Testament has to be kept in order for you to be a tzaddik. A tzaddik engages in charity because uh, Deuteronomy talks about remember when you were poor, uh, therefore give to the poor, therefore uh, welcome the alien into your house. Uh, so a tzaddik will, will exercise uh, hospitality. Um, you cannot charge interest for loans that you give. Um, you cannot wear clothing with mixed fiber. That's a funny one. Um, for many of those laws, you find reasons. I, I can't for the clothing one. Um, there is these Jews who live very st orthodox Jews now um, who, who try to lift this up, who live, try to lift this to deepness. And so they're very conscious about this clothing of uh, not mixed fibers. And um, I, I know from, from a book that I'll say a, a couple more sentences about in a second, that there in fact is um, a Jewish expert in New York. And you can phone him and he will come to your house and he will, he will um, inspect, he's an inspector, a clothing inspector, and he will inspect all your clothes, whether there's any mixed fibers. And it's not just that he reads the labels. We can do that ourselves. But he inspects it and, and puts it under the microscope, and he knows what bamboo looks like and what cotton looks like and what wool looks like and what polyester looks like and what rayon looks like. And uh, so he'll help you to lift that sadiqness. What I'm saying is it's hard to be a sadiq. It's really hard. Um, there's a book out. It's been out for a while. Uh, it's the year of living biblically. So this is a Jewish writer who actually is not very religious, uh, and he will say so. Um, and he made this experiment. He tried for a whole year to be a tzaddik, meaning to keep the 613 laws. Yeah, it's hard. Um, and so he... Um, he applies that even, even to the aspect of stoning because the Old Testament actually prescribes that adulterers need to be stoned. And, and so he, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny too. If you want to read it, you can borrow it from me. It's not quite worthwhile buying, I guess, but, but it's a funny read. Um, so, so he feels that as part of this experience, he needs to stone someone, okay? And he reads those laws, and he's trying to find loopholes. And he discovers that the size of the stone is not, not prescribed. So he, he figures that he could stone someone with pebbles rather than big stones, but just for the sake of stone. So he takes a handful of, of pebbles, and he goes to the park, 
and he tries to identify an adulterer uh, with the purpose of throwing a little pebble at him just for the experience of stoning someone. Let me read you a section because, because it's kind of funny. Um, I'm resting in a small public park on the Upper uh, West Side, the kind where you see retirees eating tuna sandwiches on benches. Hey, you're dressed queer. Well, he, he's dressed like Moses, hey? Hey, you're dressed queer. I look over. The speaker is an elderly man, mid-70s, I would guess. He's tall and thin and he's wearing one of those caps that cabbies wore in movies from the 40s. You're dressed queer, he snarls again. Why are you dressed so queer? I have on my usual tassels and, for good measure, have worn some sandals and I'm carrying a knotty maple walking stick that I've bought for $25 on eBay. I'm trying to live the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, including stoning adulterers, I reply. You're stoning adulterers? Yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. I am an adulterer. You're currently an adulterer? Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now. You're going to stone me? If I could, yes, that would be great. <laughs> I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. He's furious. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish out my pebbles from the back pocket. I won't stone you with big stones, I say, just these little guys. I open my palm to show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabbing one of the pebbles out of my hand, then flinging it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I'm stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move. But now, there's nothing stopping me from retaliating an eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. I'll punch you right in the kisser, he hisses. Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery, I say. We stare at each other. My, pu my pulse has doubled. This man has a strong, dark side. Our glaring, contests last, uh, glaring contest lasts 10 seconds. Then he walks away, brushing me as he leaves. Well, that might be funny. It wasn't quite that funny for Joseph. So Joseph is a tzaddik. It means he's a pillar of society. He, he keeps up the law. He is, he is that what people hope for. The, the rabbis at the time uh, of the Christmas story had come to the conclusion that if the Jews, if the, Israel, the Israelites, if all of Israel just would manage to keep one single Sabbath holy, holy, fully holy, then the Messiah would come. This is after a period of 400 years of silence. 400 years, nothing from God. God who had always spoken to the Jewish people through the prophets, through, through uh, miracles, through deliverance. He had been silent for 400 years, nothing. The last we experience in the Old Testament is actually uh, what happens with, with Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall, and after that, nothing. Just silence. And so they came to the conclusion, tzaddik is what we need. If we, we can't be all full tzaddiks, they realize that. But if we just manage to keep the Sabbath holy, then maybe the Messiah is coming back. Joseph is a tzaddik. So everyone's looking up to Joseph. Joseph's carpentry shop 
uh, would be a shop where you get good quality because he's a tzaddik. He won't cheat you. He won't charge uh, interest on the credit he gives you. He might be a bit slow because he needs to clean up his shop on Friday way before sundown, needs to sweep uh, the floor um, uh, because the Sabbath is holy. By the way, that's, that's funny, eh? How in the Jewish tradition, that holiness of Sabbath has become very, very complicated. The Bible says we should not work on a Sabbath. What does that mean? And so there is that body of literature which deals with it, uh, the Talmud and, and the Mishnah, and they've come to define what it means not to work. So not to work means not to light the fire. And what does that mean in the 20th century, by the way? It means that an Orthodox Jew cannot open the fridge because the light goes on. And it also is defined as uh, you cannot tear anything. Now that's a problem when you go to the washroom because you should tear off toilet paper. So Orthodox Jews, I'm not kidding you, this is serious stuff actually. Uh, Orthodox Jews will pre-tear their toilet paper for Sabbath because they take it so seriously. Because, <laughs> thank you, Lord. But, but because here's why, because they think, that's the belief, if only we can keep the Sabbath holy, the Messiah will come. And finally, shalom and peace will come to us. Finally, it will all end. Joseph is a tzaddik. But he's a tzaddik with a problem. Big problem. His problem is his girlfriend is pregnant. And Deuteronomy 22 clearly, clearly has another law that he as a tzaddik is obliged to uphold. The pregnant girlfriend should be brought to the door of her father's home and be stoned to death. That's where the pebble stone is suddenly is not funny anymore. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? And it's, it's a very short passage here, and we don't learn all that much about Joseph's solution he has in mind. Divorce Mary quietly. We don't quite know how this works. There's no provision for that either in the Old Testament. Maybe there's something about hiding her away for a while like for nine months, um, or, or something, because it, it doesn't quite line up. But, but, and here, here's my great respect for Joseph, what I want to learn as I reflect on the story. Joseph understands something. He understands, as he ponders on this, that grace trumps righteousness. That sounds strange, maybe, but grace trumps righteousness. He understands as a tzaddik, as a righteous man, there's something bigger than his quest for righteousness. He doesn't have the benefit that we have of being able to flip to Romans 3. But he understands that somehow in his heart, he understands that passage. Now, a new righteousness has been revealed. A new righteousness from God. A righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify. Because everyone, everyone has sinned and falls short. But we're justified freely through Jesus' righteousness and through his grace. Joseph understands that. He somehow understands. He understands that other word which is bigger than tzaddik. Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of God. The name of God which means you know what it means? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, 
slow to anger, but abundant in grace and faithfulness, in love and faithfulness. Somehow, Joseph understands that, that God's grace, his compassion, trumps righteousness. And Joseph is willing to relinquish his weakness. It comes at a price. As we know when we read on in the story, it does come at a price. So months later, you could root out the Christmas story, I'm sure, in, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree and so on. So Joseph, too, needs to take Mary uh, and they need to go and register in Bethlehem because it's their hometown. And then it goes on and it says that they are in a stable. There, the stable, back to the nativity set. Because why? Scripture does not say that there is no room in the inn. Scripture says there is no room for them in the inn. And I will go even further and say, well, yeah, obviously there's no room for them in the inn. A tzaddik who used to be a tzaddik and now has a pregnant girlfriend, there is for sure going to be no room for them in the inn. And not just that. If in Asia you travel to your hometown, to your ancestral city, there's no need for you to go to an inn. There's extended family. That's what family is for. Not for a former tzaddik with his pregnant girlfriend. And Joseph is prepared to relinquish this, this concept and what he has worked for so hard all his life long because he understands that grace trumps this old and somewhat mistaken concept of righteousness. That's what I want to walk away, not away from, but with this year as I reflect back on the Christmas story. There's so much... I could be, you could be, we could be righteous about, that we are entitled to, that we are right about. Um, as the director of Himalayan Life, um, we have 91 employees in Nepal. Ten of them are directly under my supervision. I'm going back for the first time after a few months. Some of my employees, they have done great work over the last few months when I was away, and others haven't. I'm entitled to tell them off, I'm entitled to fire them, I can, it's my job. But as I look at this story, I think my job is even more so to do what Joseph did, to walk, as he walked with Mary, to walk with people and help them to get closer into that grace themselves. Or relinquishing my tzaddikness, and I'm saying this to Karina mostly, uh, Karina and I have both turned 50 over the past few months. Karina only just 10 days ago, I turned 50. I think the day before I got really, really sick. So Andy sat, said the other day, well, getting 50 is not so much a problem, but surviving the first few weeks when you're 50 seems to be hard. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we've just turned 50. And when you're 50, you start forgetting stuff. I blame my illness, of course, but I forget a fair amount of stuff. And those of you who, who are maybe 50 or older, you can maybe touch on that a little bit. So, so a conversation could go like, there's no milk in the fridge. That's the Fergie family, okay? There's no milk in the fridge. Um, yeah, I told you there's no milk that you should buy some. No, you didn't tell me. 
and relinquishing the weakness maybe is even if I think I've told you, Karina, that I shut up. I'll try. Um, and there's there's more deep there's deeper stuff than just milk in the fridge. You will know what it means for you to rel relinquish some of this weakness, to relinquish some of those areas where we are right, and where being right can be so penetrant to others. But that's what I would learn, would like to learn uh, from uh, Joseph this year. Relinquishment is really what brings me full circle here, and that's what I would like to end with. I've talked about Philippians 2 um, as a key passage for the Nepalese Christians. How did Jesus get to have that name above all names? And if you read Philippians 2 in your own time, you will see that he emptied himself. That's what scripture says. By emptying himself, he came to this point where the Father gave him that name above all names. In other words, relinquishment is the key to being fulfilled. That's my prayer for uh, you guys, for myself, for Sutherland Church, for our families, for Himalayan life, for the world, that this year we would all be able to lift that truth, that by relinquishment, by to some degree emptying ourselves, by give up stuff that we seem or even are entitled to, that it will be filled beyond of what, we'll be, what, what we will be able to expect or even think of. Amen.